The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. Coming up, filmmaker Jason Berry on his documentary about jazz funerals, part of the Springfield Jazz and Roots Festival. The Cider Gauntlet with Susie Fortgang from Muse Cider Bar in Valley View Farm in Williamsburg. And Live Music Friday with folk singer Willie Carlisle. But first... Time for a special Friday edition of McGoverning with McGovern. I was busy yesterday broadcasting from a double-decker bus at the Springfield Jazz and Roots Festival, and Congressman was busy, too, so it worked out perfectly. Congressman McGovern joins us every week. You can ask him a question by emailing us at thefab413 at nepm.org. The big question this week, Congressman, of course, is Barbenheimer. Are you going to see Barbie? Are you going to see Oppenheimer? Or are you going to see both? I I, I was probably going to go see Oppenheimer this week if I have some free time tomorrow. So that's my choice. According to Politico, Elizabeth Warren is Team Barbie. Ed Mackey has declared himself Team Bobbenheimer, but he doesn't know which one he's going to go see first. I'm going to see Barbie first, and then Oppenheimer, I'm going to go the whole Barbenheimer gauntlet. We'll have a review on the show on Monday. The more serious... Well, let me, let me just... Okay, go ahead. We're speaking of, I went to see uh, Indiana Jones, Dial of Destiny, and I actually liked it a lot. Really? So, You're the only I'm, person I've re- talked to who has liked I, that movie. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. So I went with my whole family, and we I, I loved every minute of it. So All right. for what it's worth, I give it a, I give it four stars. You were, however, last weekend with Senator Warren, who is Team Barbie all the way, uh, touring some farms in our area. You went to a farm in Deerfield. You uh, also went to McKinstry's Market Garden in Hadley. These folks estimating they've lost 90% of their crop, maybe close to half a million dollars in losses. What were your takeaway from visiting these farms that were damaged by last week's floods? Well, the damage is significant, and I'm not sure we're out of the woods yet. I mean, it's going to rain again, and so a, a lot of the crop that we saw are, have to be destroyed. They can't be used. The Connecticut River, you know, rose so high that the corn was covered. So they've, they've lost uh, a significant amount uh, in, in revenue. And, you know, I think what we need to do is figure out a way to try to help them, um, try to make them as whole as possible. Uh, I've, you know, talked to the governor about seeing whether she could push uh, for an emergency supplemental um, in, the, in the state legislature to provide some more direct assistance to farms. Now, let me just stop you right uh, there because I know Senator, I mean, excuse me, I know Representative Blay had tried to submit a supplemental budget for emergency funds and that has sort of like died in committee. And now the governor yesterday was once again in Western Mass announcing this public-private partnership with the United Way and the Community Foundation with some money from the Attorney General's office going into this fund. But it, is there no more expedient way either on the state? I know you're a federal representative, but or on the federal level to inject cash into this disaster quickly? There would be if this legislature would pass what Representative Blay is, is urging be done. Look, one of the problems is you have a lot of uh, legislators who don't live in rural areas, who don't have farms, who don't appreciate the importance of our farms and of, of local agriculture. Uh, we're also trying to figure out on the federal level what we can do. Um, the way our programs are set up, there's, there's not a lot of opportunity there. But we've also talked about helping farmers refinance existing loans because they don't want any more loans to add on to their loans, but refinance existing loans at, at a lower interest rate, whether that could be of some help. So we're, we're looking at every possible way. In the meantime, you know, some of these farmers have GoFundMe pages. People ought to support those GoFundMe pages. I make sure you make an extra effort to buy local when you go grocery shopping. But this is serious and we have to figure out a way moving forward 
so that if these kinds of situations happen again, you know, we're not faced with where can we get some help. And given climate change, they're likely to continue to happen, hopefully not this season. You also have written yeah. a letter with uh, your colleagues in the Senate, Warren and Markey, as well as Congressman Richie Neal, to the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, as well as the Administrator for the Farm Service Agency, uh, uh, appealing for them to have these affected regions be designated disaster areas. We learned last week that 11 million-ish is the number that needs to be estimated in damages to trip a FEMA emergency, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, will a letter like this, uh, even if it, if the number is in flux, expedite the process of turning this into something that FEMA is able to respond to more quickly? I, we, I hope so. That's why we're doing it. But again, one of the challenges with you know a national emergency is a lot of the resources that are available go to repair of infrastructure. So if a bridge, you know, were damaged or a road were damaged, those kinds of things. And so we have to try to get them to be as liberal as they possibly can in their interpretation. It seems like like food is infrastructure. I mean, we've seen in the pandemic that there's a a national food infrastructure problem. I I agree with you, but we have to get the people who oversee these programs to agree with us. And that was one of the purposes of this letter. Got a listener question from Dennis Bromery saying the EV charging stations in Western Massachusetts and in other areas throughout the Commonwealth are lacking. If people are wanting to be encouraged to use more fuel efficient or electric vehicles as opposed to burning fossil fuels, is there any federal money for the expansion of EV charging stations? And I'll say personally, I just bought an EV car a month, two months ago, and uh, he's exactly right. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the uh, in, in the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act, which also provides monies for efforts to combat climate change, which includes urging people to be able to afford to be able to purchase more electric vehicles and uncoached charging stations. There is money. Uh, we have to work with the state to make sure that that money is, is spent appropriately. But you can't encourage people to buy more electric vehicles if charging stations, uh, you know, are you know, are not available. So, uh, yeah, there is this federal money that can be used to suffer this, some of this stuff. And, you know, we, we, ought to, we ought to spend it. You'll be in Western Mass in the 413 today with Project Bread on a tour right down the street from my house in Turner's Falls at Unity Park, as well as at Hillside Park. Tell me about what Project Bread is and why this is uh, something that you are supporting. Is this a federal program? Is this something that more philanthropic that you're supporting? No, I mean, the, the federal government provides funding um, as well as the state, as well as philanthropic organizations to make sure kids have food during the summer. You know, so we have summer feeding programs. Hunger, as you know, Monty, is the worst during the summer. You know, kids get meals in school, but during summer months, they don't always get these, these meals. This is a way to try to to lessen that gap between those who have access to food and those who do not. But this is something we need to not only highlight so that people know that they exist and they can go and take advantage of these programs, but we need to expand them. I mean, and again, I'm working with our legislative delegation to make sure that Massachusetts makes universal free school meals permanent. And then we need to beef up our summer feeding programs so that our kids can have access to good nutrition during the summer months. So I do this every year to call attention to the site so that people know that they're there um, and to also support the funding for these programs. I did join you a few years ago at one of these Project Bread sites where kids can come and get meals in the summer. And uh, I did what was my favorite interview with you ever, where I interviewed you in a bounce house. I remember that. I remember (laughs) that. (laughs) 
And by the way, Project Red is an incredible organization, the anti-hunger organization dedicated to social justice and to making sure that everybody has access to good nutrition, not just our kids, but everybody. And you know, I'm really honored to be with them on this tour. Speaking of kids, you introduced a bipartisan bill with a congresswoman from Florida as well, who is a Republican, as well as a congressman from Pennsylvania, who's a Republican, uh, in regards to ending global violence against children. Speaking of movies and Barbenheimer, there's this whole, and, and Indiana Jones, there's been this debate about a movie that is being put forward by many conservatives that has to do with child trafficking and that this is the kind of movie that we should be looking for and that Hollywood is ignoring it. Is this bipartisan bill in regards to child trafficking or is this something well, else? It's not just child trafficking, it's slave labor, it's violence against children in, in any form. You know, one of the things this bill does is it tries to coordinate uh, all of our federal agencies um, in a more rational and directed way to make sure that we're using our resources uh, to be able to combat combat child violence wherever it may be. I, I haven't seen that movie that you referred to, but uh, child trafficking, trafficking still is a problem, and we have to do more to combat it and to protect kids. I mean, this bill should not be controversial. I mean, it should be something that whether you're on the left or the right or in the middle, we should all get behind. I mean, so if you hear some more conservative rhetoric talking about how the left does not care about child trafficking and won't go see the Sound of Freedom movie, know that this most flaming liberal member of Congress, Jim McGovern, <laughs> has uh, introduced a bipartisan bill in regards to uh, an issue that would affect child trafficking and, and hopefully end it. There's another issue, Congressman, that I care very deeply about that you've been having a Twitter debate in regards to. This is not as positive a bipartisan situation, and it has to do with aliens and your alleged role in a cover-up in the Rules Committee about talking about aliens. It's your beef with Tim Burchett. Tell us what's been going on in regards with aliens, the Rules Committee, and your uh, your your Twitter battle. He posted something about how the deep state prevented him from offering an amendment to get to the bottom of what you know of UFOs and aliens. And someone pointed out to me, and I responded because it's so disingenuous. I mean, the bottom line is I'm not in charge of the Rules Committee. There are nine Republicans and there are four Democrats to blame the deep state on denying his amendment. You know, he offered this amendment to the Rules Committee. He didn't even bother to testify uh, before the Rules Committee. If, if he felt strongly about it, he would have testified. And then the Republican rule that was brought to the floor that blocked his amendment, he voted for. So the problem isn't the deep state. The problem is people like him who vote for rules that block their own amendment. And so I kind of called him on it and I think he got annoyed. But the bottom line is his party's in charge. If he felt strongly about it, he should have come to the rules committee. He should have talked to the chairman of the committee or talked to Kevin McCarthy or said, if you don't give me what I want because I feel so strongly for this, I'm going to vote against the rule. The Freedom Caucus does that all the time. You know, they don't get deep cuts in programs that help feed people, you know, they vote against the rule. So, you know, it's not like it's unprecedented, but to, to blame it on the deep state and to try to create this story, this narrative that, oh, this is all out of control. And it was, you know, something we, you know, the, the CIA block. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Anyway, he's more interested in the soundbite than in telling the truth. So you are not opposed to investigating aliens? No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'd like to know more about it. I didn't create this rule. If I was writing the rule, his amendment would have been in order. But unfortunately, Republicans are in charge. They... What happened? I, we, we I think the, the aliens cut you off, I'm pretty sure is what yeah, happened. They, right, the deep state. 
anyway, <laughs> you were saying the Republicans are in charge if they wanted to. The Republicans are in charge. I mean, they decide what comes to the floor and what doesn't come to the floor. His beef should be with the Republicans. His beef should be with the chairman of the Rules Committee. His beef should be with Kevin McCarthy. And if he didn't like the rule that blocked his amendment, he shouldn't have voted for a rule to block his own amendment. And, you know, and I think it's important for people to understand that you have Republicans who are hiding behind the rules of the House uh, to justify why things are blocked or, or why there are deep cuts in programs that benefit the vulnerable people. So I, I'm glad I responded. Congressman Jim McGovern joins us every week. You can send in a question for the congressman from McGoverning with McGovern. You can email the fab 413 at nepm.org or text us at 1-800-639-9120. Thanks as always, Congressman. Enjoy Oppenheimer, and I hope you see Barbie too at, at some point. Go see Indiana Jones with that with <laughs> I I, I, I can tell you, um, you're going to be surprised. All right. You're going to like it than you think. With all the flood talk, it is worth noting Franklin County is currently being deluged again. Coming up, filmmaker Jason Barry on its documentary about jazz funerals, part of the Springfield Jazz and Roots Festival, the Cider Gauntlet with Muse Cider Bar in Williamsburg, and folk singer Willie Carlisle. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. We celebrate and laugh at death. We're sad because you're not here anymore. We're happy because you're going to a better reward. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. Khalees Smith is away. I'm joined by journalist and filmmaker Jason Berry, whose film City of a Million Dreams, Parading for the Dead in New Orleans, will be shown at the Springfield Jazz and Roots Festival tonight and tomorrow. Jason Berry, this idea of a jazz funeral, I think for people that are familiar with New Orleans life and culture, is something that uh, is familiar. It's the idea of a second line. But... For those who aren't familiar with the jazz funeral, tell us what it is. Sure thing, and happy to be with you, Monty. Typically, funerals with music, as the early jazz men before the age of television called them, began with the brass band playing the slow, solemn dirges, the sorrow songs, as the coffin left the church, and then continuing with the dead march, slow music, unto the cemetery, And after the internment, when the coffin went down, the band would leave playing up-tempo, high-kicking music songs like Didn't He Ramble. And the two parts were meant to convey the great sorrow of losing that person. And the sequel, which is also called The Cutting Loose of the Soul from Earthly Ties, signaled the celebration of that person gone to a better life and that ignited the street dancing of folks called the second line and what why do they call it the second line because the band is the first line i always thought that the whole thing was the second line and i never totally understood it but that makes total sense now the band is the first line the dancers are the second well line. just one, one small footnote if you will and this is a very important point in the cultural dynamics of new orleans a parade now is called a second line. Uh-huh. The well of dancers behind a coffin is called the second line. And then there are social aid and pleasure clubs, as they're known, about so 40 or so, that parade every weekend from the beginning of September to roughly the beginning of June when the hard heat sets in. And those events are called public second lines. So no funeral necessary. No. And that's something we deal with in the film, how the 19th century funerals, which were very solemn affairs, 
Interestingly, it was the Civil War that saw the emergence of black people in large numbers after New Orleans was occupied by the Union. And then after Reconstruction, the public funerals became larger as more black men joined the ranks of the brass bands. And at the same time, these community groups began to fall in behind the bands when they marched for the dead. Speaking with filmmaker Jason Berry, whose film City of a Million Dreams Parading for the Dead in New Orleans is part of the Springfield Jazz and Roots Festival. It'll screen tonight at 6 o'clock and Saturday at 3.30 and 6 o'clock on Bridge Street in Springfield at the Revix Labs. There will also be a non-funeral necessary second line parade on Saturday at 12.30 that'll leave from the steps of Springfield City Hall. So you can participate in one of these glorious affairs. What was it that got you interested in this topic? You wrote a book about these funerals and then turned uh, that book essentially into a documentary. Well, the book and the film were an overlapping project for a good many years. Actually, what got me interested was conversations I had with several musicians, one of whom is a key navigational figure in the film, Dr. Michael White. Uh, He's a professor at Xavier University and a tremendous composer. And he and Greg Stafford, a trumpeter who also has a key role in the film, were complaining about the impact of the crack epidemic in the late 80s and into the 90s and how so many young people were being killed in drug wars and the second lines for those young people were much more fiery and hard-edged in the body language to these musicians it seemed as if a certain spiritual dignity was being stripped out of this long tradition that goes well back into the 19th century and i really got curious about the kind of rupture, if you will, between continuity and change. And fortunately, I got the Ford Foundation interested in a proposal along these lines, and I filmed a number of funerals and interviews with musicians in the late 90s, and that sort of laid the groundwork for both the film and the book. And then, of course, it was cut off in no small part by Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And Katrina is also a major character in your film here and what it means and meant for the city and how these second line parades, these jazz funerals play into the rebuilding of a city that was questioning whether it was going to have a a future life. Do you want to talk about Katrina's uh, impact on the film? Yes, it just about destroyed it. Mm -hmm. I mean, fortunately, none of the film files were damaged, but it completely upset our treatment, our narrative line. Uh, The city became a sort of disaster dateline. And I wanted to make sure that we regrouped in a way that would tell the story of the city through these funerals. As Dr. White says, we filmed him going through his house after the flood. It's a turning point scene in the film, very powerful. He lost everything. And he says, I have to remember that this is sort of like a jazz funeral. After the sorrow will come the jubilation. The concept of these jazz funerals, from what I've seen in the film, is a sort of a hybrid between African and European traditions. I love that mashup. I love that New Orleans is a city that is is that way as well. But one thing that I took away from the movie that I thought was really interesting is that the instruments in these jazz funerals actually represent the sound of different grieving voices. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. You know, the funerals represent really the coming together of the African ring dances, which were ceremonial dances to the ancestors, in which the drums are not only, you know, the rhythmic foundation, but they also have vocal qualities. 
in the Western tradition of instrumentation, the clarinet plays a pivotal role because it articulates the weeping widow, the grieving, sobbing loss uh, in the high sense of the upper register of that instrument. And Dr. White, uh, in his uh, interview in the film, talks about how the clarinet intones this uh, voice of sorrow and great sadness. Whereas with the trumpets and drums, you have the more buoyant bravura sense of where the soul is going. You know, generation by generation, as these various peoples came with their traditions, particularly in music, the funerals became a sort of common ground whereby this Creole culture composed of many ethnic strands, Sicilian, African, Portuguese, Spanish, it became a, a kind of public space where all of these strands could come together in a American context. And give people who were otherwise marginalized ownership of the streets in a very real way. So that, that sort of racial expression is also an, a pivotal part of why these jazz funerals are important. Uh, yes, you're absolutely correct. In fact, we treat the rise of jazz music as a counter narrative to the lost cause. You know, the period in which the South was trying to uh, recover its dignity after the Civil War, the horror and violence toward uh, Black people uh, during Reconstruction, and, you know, putting in these Confederate statues. These funeral processions became a statement of freedom. And in some respects, it challenged the status quo. The idea that Black people could take to the streets in such massive numbers was unsettling and oftentimes led to, you know, conflicts. I think, and I'm not sure if the movie actually answers this question or if there is an answer to this question, but I think if there's a song that people think of when they think of New Orleans, it's When the Saints Go Marching In, which by the very definition of even the title has to do with people who have passed on death and dying and marching. So you've got these jazz funerals and you've got this iconic New Orleans song. What came first? Well, I think they sort of matured, ripened at the same time. A lot of people don't realize this, but the Saints, as the song is, uh, you know, typically called, the Saints was originally a song in very slow tempo as a spiritual, and it was sung in churches. Oftentimes, people would hold candles and move in very slow processions around their churches, singing this song. All of that changed in 1938 when Louis Armstrong recorded the song. We treat the song in both contexts in the film. But you're right, it has become the sort of signature song of the bands that perform today. City of a Million Dreams, Parading for the Dead in New Orleans. It's a film by journalist and filmmaker Jason Berry, who's been joining us. You can see it at the Springfield Jazz and Roots Festival tonight at 6 o'clock, tomorrow at 3.30 or 6 o'clock on Bridge Street at Revix Labs. And you can yourself participate in a historic second-line parade that'll leave from the steps of Springfield City Hall at 1230 sharp on Saturday and dance its way through the streets until it gets to Stern Square. And the Charles Neville, New Orleans legend, uh, who made his home here in Western Mass main stage. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jason. Thank you, Monty. It's been a great pleasure. And let me just add, Charles was a good friend of mine. Ah, and, me uh, too. My, my first documentary, in fact, was about his family. So Charles has a special place in my heart, as do all the Nevilles. Coming up, 
not the wine Thunderdome, but the Cider Gauntlet with Susie Fortkang from Muse Cider Bar in Williamsburg and later Live Music Friday with folk singer Willie Carlisle. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Should we do this Thunderdome style? I mean, we can. There's four of them, though. That's more of a like a gladiatorial sort of thing. Yeah. It's the Cider all... Coliseum. Are you not entertained? I don't think all the alcohol we drink needs to be drunk Thunderdome style. Here we are with a flight instead of just two in front of us, and we get to love them all equally as God's children. We're at Muse Cider Bar in Williamsburg. My name is Susie Fortgang. I'm the cider maker. This is part of Valley View Farms campus, for lack of a better word. I've been to a bunch of amazing events that have happened here uh, in the event space. Right. But I don't know if I've been here since before the pandemic. The irony of that being that I only started coming here <laughs> during the pandemic. Yeah, because you, Valley View Farm was doing fun, safe, outdoor stuff when most everything else had stopped. And I think I was maybe just too depressed so I just would go home. <laughs> yeah, and we couldn't have weddings, hold weddings. Uh-huh. So we opened our venue to the community and it was a slam dunk. People were so thirsty to be outside, to be together, to hear good music, to drink cider and cocktails, all farm inspired. pizza. It was so inspiring for us that we've since bought our own pizza oven and smoker. Wow. And we have a taco truck now. So Valley View Farm is not a a farm farm per se, is it? It's a working farm. Oh, is it? In fact, the big flood Mm -hmm. washed out our lower fields and Maura Healy wants to get us some money to rebuild. And the rivers calm down, but it leaves the fields and fencing needs all to be rebuilt. Did it affect your orchards too? No, because our orchards are up here on a hill. And now did the frost of May 18th affect your orchards? Because I mean, so many people lost apples this year. It's been a terrible year for farmers. Yes, it Um, has. And cider, which we're about to drink, may be one of the best ways to enjoy (laughs) apples this season. I mean, it is regardless. Cider is one of the best ways to enjoy apples, hard or sweet. Yeah, but these go last a little bit longer than the ones on the tree. was called Central Dairy and also had an orchard with 7,000 Baldwin trees. And cider was made from it. The orchardist was nationally known and people would come here, young people would come here to learn about orcharding and growing apple trees. And he believed the apple would save New England. Mm. Um, Yet might. The peach trees this year, no peaches. The apples don't look great, but we have apples. And then we have part of that heritage orchard, the old orchard. The trees are probably, you know, over 100 years old. And those trees look great. All of that is on a hillside above the river so they were not affected by this flood. How did you start making cider? Well we planted 200 apple trees. I had never tasted cider and I somehow someone handed me a glass and I tasted it and I was like whoa that's good. I want to make that. I could make that and I started in in the house six years ago. Uh Then I just took a deep dive into the cider making community, which is a small community. But this Uh, is the best, one of the best places in the whole world to be part of that community, Western Mass. It's the original place that really started uh, rejuvenating cider before the prohibition. That's all everyone drank. It's not that hard to make because I learned to make it. Um, I started at home and then I moved into a garage which sits in the old heritage 
heritage apple orchard. I leaned on all my uh, cider making buddies to teach me, and my cider's pretty good, I have to say. <laughs> well, we'll be the judge of that. Susie Fortgang here at Valley View Farm, the cider maker from Muse Cider Bar. This, you said, used to be your husband's sugar shack, but yeah, you've this is... kicked him out and turned it into like a super swanky, amazing Yeah, put bar. a whole new sugar shack across the parking yeah. lot so we could have this space. He built this, we built this. Uh, there's a farmer slash mason in Hatfield, Ed Melanowski, and he's a super talented mason, and he designed and built this by hand. Gorgeous work of art. Each piece of stone was either from our, our farm or from uh, Goshen Stone. They built it, and David boiled his sap in here, and I started making cider a year later, and gave him the nudge and now he fixes all my equipment mm -hmm. and built himself another little sugar shack instead of a mansion which this turned into and like i said swanky cool it's bar swanky. now clara walnut bar super cool music the bartenders kate and oscar are will get to know you and just make you very happy. The Muse Cider Bar is open every Thursday, and then it's open afternoon, evening, on days that we do not host weddings. So our schedule is a little hard to follow, but we always post it on Instagram, and we have a website. So it's kind of like a speakeasy feel, where it's like one day a week, almost like a pop-up. Right, all word of mouth. On the top of a hill, at a, on a dead-end road. But an incredibly gorgeous space. Mm -hmm. And this is why this people is want to get married here. this is my favorite view. I mean, you're looking at High Ridge and looking at the apple orchard and the land is special. The first homesteader, he got up here, uh, he left Northampton. He was 23, an explorer, hunter, and he found this hill and built a little uh, homestead. And he was up here by himself for 15 years, just living the life. And then the old carriage path used to go from Worcester all the way through here and all the way to Northampton. They started Williamsburg back then, and that was the 1735. Well, Susie Fort Gang from Muse Cider Bar, the cider maker here in Williamsburg, walk us through your flight here. What's, okay. no, what's number one? Yeah, so the number one is my house brand. It's called Slingshot. It's our flagship. It's our apples fermented in bourbon barrels with a little of David's maple syrup and finished in stainless steel. It's not super bourbony, you just get like a little bit of vanilla and it's not yeah. super sweet from the maple like a lot of back sweetened ciders tend to be. But it's also you know yeasty. What you're talking which, about. But it's also like a little yeasty, which is a thing that I quite like. Mm -hmm. It's bready on the nose and on the tongue and that's really cool. Too. Yeah, I love that too. And I'm also getting a little bit of a weird nutty, peanutty mm -hmm. thing almost, which, you know, isn't yeah. part of the actual process. Probably right. comes from the bourbon barreling. Right. And it yeah. changes over time. It's alive. And so the longer it sits in the barrel or in a bottle, it continues to change. Okay, what's the second okay, one that you got there, Susie, from the new cider bar? It's called Redfield. Is that that Nicolas Cage movie about vampires? Some call me the Dark One, others the Lord of Death. It could be. Oh, that's Renfield. So Redfield's a single variety cider made from red-fleshed Redfield apples. That's what's cool about Redfield apples. People don't know about cider. They probably don't know about this apple. But most of the time, no matter what color of the skin is of the apple, you bite into it, it looks white. 
but the red field looks red. Yeah. It is red. It is red. It's tart when you juice it, but it's beautiful in the bottle because of its color. And it's not sweet from adding all kinds of wild fruits that don't grow around here, which I don't do. But I think people don't necessarily know that like most cider apples are not sweet. Sometimes like super tannic, but the way that changes when it ferments is a thing of beauty. I love the red field. Mm-hmm. Good. All my cider is dry. It's all made like wine. It's exactly the same process. In fact, I learned how to make wine before I learned how to make cider. They say cider is harder. So we also grow blueberries and we grow the blueberries specifically for our cider. So this next one is called rosé. It's very fruit forward, crisp and tangy with notes of berries. Mm -hmm. Because they're in here. This isn't like the peanut stuff I had before, which wasn't in there. This is real blueberries in here. It's blueberries soaked in the slingshot. And then we add a little of teeny, teeny bit of David's maple syrup, always, just because he makes that with humongous love. You'd feel left he out if you up, didn't allow him to do he that. He grew up. You already um, kicked him out of his si- his original <laughs> sugar shack. I know. The sugar mansion. What's our last cider in this flight? Susie Fortgang, the cider. cider maker from Muse Cider Barn. This is the one at Valley View that I don't think I've tried before. We call it wild because it's apples that we just leave in the bourbon barrel for two years and let it go wild. All fruits with sugars want to become alcohol. It's what they want to be. Just let them do do what they want to do. They're covered in yeast and bacteria already, and if you give them some time, then they'll do what they do. Mm -hmm. They do. Some can be a little on the, they call it farmhouse-y or... This smells barnyardy, and that is a good thing. We are both pro-funk. I describe it in a much less bodily way than than Monty does. This smells like a barn, and I'm so excited about it. You know what animals do in a barn, listener. We actually have horses. They're close to the barn. The apples. (laughs) Maybe it's all part of the terroir. (laughs) That's my fantasy, is that the cidery that sits in the old orchard picks up some of those old generational yeast. It's a fun experiment. It's hard to make consistent year to year, but if you don't care that much about that, have a blast. Yeah, I'm not distributing my cider. You can only get it here. Get a flight, taste them all. We welcome anyone and everyone. People bring their kids, they bring dogs, pet the horses, and... Hang out at the fire pits. Yeah, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous space. And like when my very introverted wife comes with me to events here, she would love to go walk and just hang out with the horses while I was schmoozing with the fancy schmance people in the... uh, There you go. Well, we're starting Sunday. This Sunday, we're having a farm bar reunion. So the next six Sundays, we'll be reliving that wonderful communal experience that we all survived through in the pandemic. Yeah, you were the pandemic place to go. We were. You're very close to Northampton to come here. It does. It's a hop, skip, and a jump away, but it's a world away at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what's glorious about it. That was my intention. Being outside, being with people we love, meeting new people and bringing people outdoors and teaching people something about farming. Susie Fortgang from Muse Cider Bar and Valley View Farm in Williamsburg. Up next, it's Live Music Friday with folk singer Willie Carlisle. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. 
Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. Khalees Smith is away, but it is still Live Music Friday here. And joining me in the studio is Willie Carlisle, a poet, a folk singer for the people. Played at Bombix in Florence last night. Has played at the Back Porch Music Festival, where he blew my mind. Has played at the Freshgrass Festival in North Adams a couple times. Originally from Kansas, but with his heart in Arkansas, so I hear. The talented <laughs> multi-instrumentalist plays guitar, fiddle, button box, banjo, harmonica, and rhythm bone and also calls square dances, which is something I want to talk about in a little bit. He tweeted, I get sick of queer folk singer being an advertisement for my work and would much prefer good folk singer. But you know what's worse? That queer people friends get bullied and denied civil rights. So here we are. And here we are in the fabulous 413. (laughs) Let's hear something from Willie Carlisle. Thanks for having me. Calling me up, he's sure I might love him. I only answer when I'm drunk to the leaves. We talk about Memphis, living so rough that the strength in his voice makes me weak at the knees. Not sure what I saw, for I looked in his eyes. He'd star cross just cause stars might proper high lonesome till it's almost too sad to be true what happened in Memphis made too much sense there's a part of my life she don't know exists why is living a lie more easy than life on the fence why is living a Calling me up, 
He's sure I might love him Whereas living the life more easy Than life on the fence Willie Carlisle, live in the fabulous 413 uh, I know you may get sick of the uh, the moniker queer folk singer would prefer good folk singer, so I'm going to say you are a good folk singer. And I think <laughs> that taking a song like that and doing good with it when you're having a national conversation about country music with folks like Jason Aldean who are taking country music and doing some damage with it to try to do a little good with the, the folk music, the country music, I think is important. Yeah, you know, you hope to. I will say I, I, I think I distrust anything that's on the level of marketing that Jason Aldean's already doing anyways, you know. <laughs> and I would distrust um, anything that I wrote that was intended to reach many, a hun- more than 100 million people. I don't know exactly where the cutoff is, but it's actually kind of nice to write queer folk songs because you're intentionally, you know, it's not uninteresting to the general population, but you also know that there's a certain group of people uh, that it might speak the loudest to, you know what I mean? I actually really appreciate that subdivision of audience, and I, I think that's one of the pitfalls of, uh, of Mr. Aldean's recent work is that he's tried to appeal to so many people at once that he's ended up alienating a lot of people. A real energetic gift is a lot better than um, trying to manipulate people into buying in entirely, right? It's nice to ruffle feathers when you can. It's also nice that you're not using it for rainbow washing either, which is the other end of the spectrum where you could roll out and be marketed in that way. You're just being true to yourself and the, the kind of music that you want to make. Yeah, and, I, and that's what I distrust, but I think I decided that being able to love everybody needed to be, at least from my own perspective, from my own life, I needed it to be a superpower instead of a liability. And I think we get taught uh, that it's a liability and um, that we won't fit in anywhere. And instead, um, you know, it's kind of the opposite as being like, hey, if you're uh, attracted to everybody in the world, well, then you actually could see yourself fitting in almost anywhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Speaking with Willie Carlisle, who played at Bombix in Florence last night, was kind enough to come by the studio and play in the fabulous 413 for us here today. And I mentioned before that you are a square dance caller. And I've heard you quoted before talking about the different types of square dancing, the Henry Ford U.S. <laughs> propaganda square dancing versus the common vernacular square dancing of the Ozarks and of the people. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the difference between those two types of square dancing and, and what attracts you to the vernacular square dancing? Man, I'm, I'm so happy to get this question. Um, <laughs> Because uh, it fits so well in with what we were just talking about. It's my understanding that most of the square dancing that people ended up doing in like their PE classes in grade school was built around these kind of initiatives uh, started by nonprofits that were funded largely by Henry Ford that were designed to keep American musical traditions pure, uh, a.k.a. white, and to keep the influence of uh, jazz music <laughs> away from the youth. Uh, funnily enough, that's where square dancing went to die for most people, right? Um is in their PE class in the third or fourth grade. Um, Even in the Northeast, I did square dancing in PE class. Yeah, that's what, you, what most people tell me. But the kind that I like and learned was um, actually I was like a punk kid going to square dances with all my little mohawked weirdo friends because it was fun. It was like a mosh pit where your grandparents will catch you um, <laughs> and where there's babies in a potluck uh, instead of the... Not the, to eat, people. Right? <laughs> <laughs> not to eat, no. And it also was actually some of the first places I, I got, you know, as a as an angry young man growing up in the Midwest, I wasn't, didn't have a lot of like socialized good touch. And um, that was a space that was for it. 
it, but also these were really well-integrated communities, um, like uh, politically and socially. People filled a lot of niches, right? It was a place where people found um, found what they needed, found the help that they needed, found the child care that they needed, so on. It was sort of community gathering as well as, a, as an opportunity for everybody to get together and, and play basically playing a game together, a large-scale game just with bodies instead of chess pieces or something. Is the calling different for the Henry Ford style of square dancing versus the kind that you're attracted to, Willie Carlisle? Yeah, sure, of course. Um, Can you give us an example? uh, Yeah. Well, so if I was to try to confuse you and use a lot of jargon, I would say, alamen left to your left hand, back to your partner, right and left grand, hand over hand and heel over heel. The more you square dance, the better you feel. Hand over hand and foot over foot. The more you square dance, the better you look. Swing them all, swing them all. They're short and they're skinny. They're fat and they're tall. Promenade, promenade, ice cream, peaches, lemonade, swing that one right off the floor. That's all there is. There ain't no more. And if that sounds like it's a lot, it's because it is. Uh-huh. But every single one of those pieces of pattern relates to an incredibly simple dance move. And I would say the main difference uh, between the like uh, Henry Ford ones and the vernacular ones is that the vernacular ones are usually really simple, can all be taught on the spot to people with generally not much experience. And then also they have that those kind of rhyming patterns as memnonics so that when you hear that rhyme come again, you know what to do. You know, you don't forget the electric slide, right? That's right. <laughs> you just kind of don't. <laughs> I can do it right now. Exactly. And we and we are doing it, in fact, here in Radio Land. Yeah. Yes. Speaking with Willie Carlisle, who played at Bombix in Florence last night, uh, let's hear one more song from Willie Carlisle here in Live Music Friday in the fabulous 413. I'll uh, do one from my first record. This is called The Small Things. It's nice to revisit old emotions. and These emotions are about eight years old now. Hope I die in Sedgwick County On a cold and wet October Turn the earth over Lay me in, lay me in And I hope you make the drive up Hope it breaks your little car Hope you bring your guitar Sing about what little worms we are How the rapture saves us all Honey, I don't know if I believe in heaven Well, in my head it's always dark and bare Honey, I can't think of an afterlife worth living When in your heaven I know I ain't there when in your heaven I know I ain't there and if I cry it's for the small things Two beers on a Wednesday night Church songs in the firelight and if you sing, sing for the big thing Hanging over our heads best you've done is love it still ends up dead 
They're gonna drag me up to heaven to see old St. Peter and nothing but a wife beater. Tell him what I done, what I done. I'm gonna fight with all the angels, get drunk in heaven's bars, saying goodbyes too hard. They'll cut me off, they'll cut me off. Honey, I don't know if I believe in heaven. Well, in my head, it's always dark and bare. Honey, I can't think of an afterlife worth living. When in your heaven, I know I ain't there. When in your heaven, I know I ain't there. And if I cry, it's for the small things. One summer spent hitching, sweet kisses in the kitchen. If you sing, sing for the big thing hanging over our heads. The best you've done is love, it still ends up dead. Honey, I don't know if I believe in heaven. Well, in my head, it's always dark and bare. Honey, I can't think of an afterlife worth living. When in your heaven, I know I ain't there. When in your heaven, I know I ain't there. When in your heaven, I know I ain't there. Willie Carlisle, live in the Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The new album, the magnum opus, Peculiar Missouri. Yeah, I'll take it. Uh, when everybody calls it a magnum opus, I usually call it a magnum opossum. Yeah, <laughs> I'm really proud of that record, yeah. Do we know when you're going to be back in uh, Western Mass or New England next? Well, do you call Rhode Island New England? We sure do. Well, I'll be at the Newport Folk Festival in about a week. Oh, that's so, great. But that's, I love it out here. I'll come back as often as I can, and I'll be here in the next week, too. Willie Carlisle, thank you so much. Bless you. Thank you. Careful driving out there. Flash flooding again in certain locations, especially it seems in Franklin County. Next week, Tim Garvin from the United Way of Central Mass, who's working with the Healy Driscoll administration on the newly announced Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund in light of the flooding. We'll also take you to North Adams to talk with the folks from Bang on a Can at Mass Mocha. We'll have a special celebration of the anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act and Calvin Mania about Calvin Coolidge. Our director is Tony, not that white snake. Don, our engineer is Betsy. Take me to see Barbie Lankto. We will see you next week on The Fabulous 413.